0: Today we'll see how these words truly come to life with the response of John the Baptist to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and we'll be reflecting on that as we read together from Luke chapter 7, the verses 18 to 30. Luke chapter 7, the verses 18 to 30. Now, up to this point in time, Jesus has been preaching his Sermon on the Plain, which is very similar to his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, after that, he entered Capernaum, and he healed the servant of a centurion. And then it came uh, to pass shortly after that, that he went to a city called Maine with many of his disciples, and he raised the, from the dead the only son of a woman who was a widow, he had compassion on her. And all around the countryside, people were saying, a great prophet has risen up among us. God has visited his people. Now we come to Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. So they reported to him, they reported back to John concerning everything that was Going on over the last little while, Jesus' sermons and Jesus' actions. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? Then the men had, when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? And that very hour, he cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things that you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me, when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, Even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So far, the word of God. congregation loved by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, have you ever had it that things did not unfold the way that you had thought or hoped they might? Maybe a decision has come up in your life. Maybe you've reached a crisis point in your life and the stakes are high. Who you are to date or marry in the Lord, considering where you are to go for work and if there's a church nearby, or something else in which Jesus lays claim over your life. But the stakes are high, and frustrations can arise in the midst of this. Perhaps to follow Jesus would mean a departure from the plan that you had laid out for your life, or else it would mean sacrificing something that you'd held on to dearly up to this point. This was not in your plans. This was not in your books. And it makes you slow down and think. Is Jesus, the one who lays claim over my life, is Jesus the one who is to come? Or will a change in scenery be my salvation? Will a change in my stage of life from single to married, be my salvation? Will this job that I take on be my salvation? Will this other choice that is placed before me perhaps be my salvation instead? If we put it like that, the answer seems pretty obvious to us, doesn't it? It's pretty black and white. Jesus is my salvation. But we all have times in our lives when we need to take a step back again. We all have times when we need that assurance, when we need the words of Psalm 86 that we just sang, the first line of Psalm 86, verse 6, strengthen me in my affliction, when a time of frustration or when a time of tension, when a time when the rubber hits the road on our faith rises up. We need that assurance again, yes, Jesus is the one who is to come. Jesus is my Savior. John the Baptist in our passage today needed this reminder as well. And Christ responded full of grace and truth. As we look at our text today, we'll see how the stakes are high But Jesus assures us that submission to him is worth it. That though frustrations arise, he is the one who is to come. Are you the coming one? Or are we to look for another? What John says here seems to be odd considering it's coming from the one who saw himself as Christ's number one supporter in a lot of ways. John was the first one to announce Jesus Christ. John the Baptist had announced Jesus Christ before anyone else knew who he was. He was the one who had shouted loudly, Behold, the Lamb of God. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, didn't he? Are you the coming one, or are we to look for another? There are three main different points of view on John's response. Two of them try to explain away John's question. It seems unnatural to them that he would doubt, considering who he was and what he had announced. And we'll take a quick look at these and then move to the third. In the first view, it is that it wasn't John who doubted, but it was his disciples who doubted. John knew their doubts and had sent the disciples over to see for themselves. John himself would never doubt, the thinking behind this view goes, but his disciples might, and so he's doing them a favor by sending them to Jesus. However, if we look at verse 19, it seems unlikely because we see that it's not the disciples themselves who do anything, but it's John who calls the two disciples to him and sends them to Jesus. It's John who initiates everything in response to everything that is going on. Likewise, in verse 22 of our passage, we don't see Jesus responding to the disciples, but we see Jesus responding to the question that John himself had posed and telling them to carry back the answer to John himself. The second view is that John was falling back into a point of view that was more common in his day and in later Judaism as well. Namely, that there were two messiahs who were coming. The suffering messiah, the son of Joseph, and the kingly messiah, the son of David. And his doubt was not so much that Jesus was the messiah. His doubt was which messiah Was Jesus going to be? Was he going to be the one that would deliver the people of God? The judge who was to come? Well, we run into another problem here. There is no evidence that John the Baptist ever considered that there might be two Messiahs. John's disciples specifically say in verse 20 Are you the coming one? Or are we to look for another? They're talking about one person alone who would have within himself all of the attributes of the Messiah. And in case there was any doubt, Luke goes out of his way to report that this was exactly what John himself was asking. In verse 19, we see that it's a direct quote. There was nothing lost in the bringing of the message. It wasn't him asking about there maybe being two Messiahs in the The disciples carry on a question about one, but John himself says word for word, are you the coming one, or are we to look for another? It's not the question of his disciples doubting and not John himself doubting. And it's not the question that John thought that there might be another Messiah who is coming after Jesus. Luke is going out of his way in his report, in his gospel, to show that John the Baptist was the one who was genuinely questioning Jesus. As much as others try to explain it away, they just can't do that very easily, considering the passage, the text that lays open before us. So this leaves us with the task of asking, why? Why then did John say this? If it was truly John who was asking these questions, and what does it mean for us? Well, this brings us to the third point that people have when they view this passage, the most compelling view that we have today, that John himself was shaken For a moment of time, John the Baptist, the one who himself was the forerunner of the Messiah, was shaken. Why? Well, there was good reason for his second-guessing and his desire to be absolutely certain, humanly speaking. You see, John was speaking from a particular context. We discover in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11, the verses 2 to 19, that John was in prison at the time of the sending of his disciples. Shortly after sending his disciples to question Jesus, the Gospels tell us that John is executed. So he would have known when he sent his disciples to Jesus that he wasn't likely to come out of his imprisonment alive. There was good reason, humanly speaking, for his desire to be absolutely certain. And now he was hearing news about Jesus that he didn't seem to expect. Jesus had just finished his sermon on the plain, speaking about being blessed when people curse you, about love for one's enemies, and about not judging others yourself, but leading them to God and seeing his judgment. He also heard about Jesus healing the centurion's servant, a member of the people who oppressed the nation of Israel, even if he was a kind one. We read in Luke 7 verse 18, John's disciples told him about all of these things. And it seems that John didn't expect to hear these things. Why? What could John have been looking for that caused him to give this kind of a response, to ask this kind of a question? Well, think about the kind of person John himself was. He was a straight shooter. He was bold, confrontational. His words put him into prison. Herod hadn't liked what he had to say. He spoke out against Herod very loudly, very prominently. And he expects Jesus to act in a similar way, yet with more power behind it. Maybe he even had in mind the earthly power that so many ascribe to the coming Messiah. But here he hears about Jesus having mercy, not speaking about judgment. Yes, there are those who believe that he is a great prophet. Luke 7, verse 16. And that news is going out, but he doesn't seem to be building on top of that. There's a frustration behind John's questions. You can almost imagine John thinking, I I prophesied about you. When are you going to come with the Holy Spirit and fire? Luke chapter 3, verse 16. He had gone before the crowds. He had spoken to them loudly and boldly that Jesus was coming to judge. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He is coming with the Holy Spirit and with fire. When's this going to happen? When are you going to come with cleansing power? Here, Jesus is being nice, you might say, while John is in prison. Is he going to show his cleansing power? Is he maybe not the one who is to come after all? It's comforting to think that even brothers in the faith 2,000 years ago needed the comfort of Jesus' assurance, though they had looked on his face themselves. They needed those words of Psalm 86, verse 6 Strengthen me in my affliction. It's not that John's faith had completely failed in our passage today. It's not that he suddenly wavered and doubted that all of his ministry and all of his life was pointless. Rather, John was a, in a precarious situation and the stakes were high. He could lose his life over this. And things were not unfolding the way that he had prophesied in his mind. John the Baptist just wanted assurance, both for himself. And for his disciples, as he would transition them over to the care of Jesus his Lord. He did do that later on. So too, we can have days in which we start to wonder. Things aren't unfolding the way that we expect. And perhaps we start to get frustrated and we start to have real questions. We're reminded again and we're encouraged again here that it's not as such, a bad thing to have such questions. It's not a bad thing to voice our questions to God. If you look at the book of Psalms, you see times like this rising up again and again. The question is not if you have such questions. The question is where you go with such questions, when things are not unfolding the way you'd hoped, you'd imagined, that you desired. When you ask, How long, O Lord? Or, Where are you, O Lord? Or, What are you doing here? And this is where we see a beautiful response in John. He doesn't have an absence of questions, rather, he acknowledges his questions. And he takes them to the only one who can answer. He takes them to Jesus Christ. And in compassions, in patience, full of grace and truth, Jesus takes the time to answer him. This brings us to our second point. We read the question of the disciples. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Now, Jesus didn't have to answer the disciples of John. He could have taken offense. He could very well have said, Who are you to question me? And he would have every right to do that, wouldn't he, considering who he is. Jesus doesn't do that. But he doesn't say anything either, does he? At least not at first. He calls John's disciples to follow him. And instead of answering questions, Jesus acts. Words are one thing. Promises are one thing. Jesus, however, goes above and beyond. He wants to instill utter confidence in himself as the Messiah. And in doing so, He does two things for the disciples of John and for us today. Not only does He work to remove all doubt that He is the Messiah and He is the one who is to come, He also works to teach and to remind John and us today what the Messiah truly came to do and who He truly came to be. You see, we often have it when we have such questions or when we struggle with frustrations and doubts. It's because we've forgotten who God truly is. We've forgotten the task of Jesus Christ on earth. And when we struggle ourselves, we've forgotten our own position on earth as well. Our own calling. As human beings, our task is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is the only place where we'll be able to find true and lasting joy. True, meaningful joy. Sometimes we seem to think that we can only do that when life is going well, when everything in life is going according to plan. That's when we know that God is God. Everything is falling into place for us. God in His providence has allowed everything to fall into place for us. That's when we know that God is God and we rest and find peace. Yet there are times when God in His providence does not allow everything to fall into place for us. And that's still in His providence. Yet Jesus teaches us here that even in the midst of sorrow and trouble for individuals, God is still God. Jesus is still the one who is to come. And we can still glorify him in the place that we are in with the time that we have left, even with the limited resources that are at our disposal at that time. Because he is the one who is to come. And since our only comfort in life and in death is that we belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. When he reaffirms that he is our Savior, we can reset, remind ourselves again, and set ourselves to glorify him wherever we find ourselves. So getting back to Jesus, how did he reaffirm his position as Savior and Messiah? How did he comfort John? How did he strengthen him in his affliction? Look at verse 21. The disciples ask him that question, and that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. What was that supposed to accomplish? It leads John, John's disciples, and the crowds who are around to think back to Jesus' inaugural sermon when He first began His ministry. In Luke 4, especially verse 18, He quoted before setting out, as the theme text for His ministry, He quoted before setting out from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61, the verses 1 to 3. Jesus said there, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This is my purpose here on earth, Jesus is saying. Jesus himself lays it out even more clearly in the very next verses. Jesus answered and said to him, Go tell John the things you have seen and heard. That the blind see that the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. He's drawing attention back to that very same text. John had let himself become a little frustrated Because John, as Jesus points out in verse 24 to 27, was the last of the Old Testament prophets who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And we read in 1 Peter 1 verses 10 to 11 a further description of the work of prophets as such. It said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully Though they and the angels in times past longed to look into these things, God only revealed it through Jesus Christ himself, who the Messiah was to be. The Old Testament prophets, in whose line John followed, were given by God to know the what of salvation that was coming, but they weren't given the how So it's only natural to John that he faced uncertainty when his life was on the line. But Jesus, this is why he is here. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he is comforting John by what he does, letting him know that he is the Savior, that he is doing exactly what he was called to do during his time on earth. And Jesus closes that off with the words of verse 23. Blessed is he who is not offended by me because of me. Blessed The Greek word here points out that the stakes are high. Yes, you may feel the stakes are high on the other side when going into it. Yes, things might not seem to be panning out the way that you had hoped. But Jesus promises that the reward is much greater for those who believe and who are not offended by his message and by his approach, by who he came to be as Messiah, who put their trust in him, offended. The word used in Greek here is the same root as our English word scandalized. Some disciples would be scandalized. They would have desired Jesus to thunder much more mightily than he did. They wanted him to lead the people into a military victory against Rome, establishing his kingdom on earth. But Jesus says, no, I'm here to preach the kingdom of God and to bring liberty, the liberty of the gospel. And that is so much greater than anything else you and I could ask for or hope for when we begin to see it unfolding in full. For those who enjoy the blessings of the gospel as they unfold, they will be richly blessed. It says here, For I say to you, among the, those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The crowds now get to see, before their very eyes, what John had only hoped to peer into as one of the prophets of the old guard, so to speak the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah before their very eyes. Now here, you have to understand what Jesus is saying when he's speaking of John. Here Jesus is not making a point about John so much as he is making a point about the significance of being included in the kingdom of heaven, of those who receive the actions and the words of Jesus by faith. There is a comparison being made about relative significance, but it has nothing to do with passing judgment on John as being in or out of the kingdom. In fact, we have every reason to believe that he was himself included in it. And we see from the response of the people who were gathered there who had been baptized with the baptism of John, they responded justifying, praising God. So they didn't see it as a critique on John either. The point about John the Baptist was simply that although he played a very special role in history, the role itself foretold as the one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah, this did not make him special in the kingdom because that placement is dependent on the work of the Son of Man, not that of John. What greater honor could a man have than to be the herald of the greatest event in all of history? And yet that honor is shown as insignificant compared to the honor that all who believe and put their trust in Jesus Christ receive as believers grafted into God's family, being made inheritors alongside of Christ in His kingdom. So yes, verses 29 and 30, the response of the crowds and the disciples and the tax collectors was to justify God. They praised God as righteous, as worthy of honor, and they rejoiced in the free gift of the kingdom to those who believed. They rejoiced as they saw the prophecy of Isaiah unfolding before their eyes, not in an earthly kingdom, but in the the heavenly riches being poured out there. They acknowledging themselves to be unrighteous sinners because they are the ones who embrace the baptism of John, having repented of sin, asked for forgiveness and turned to God. They acknowledging themselves as unrighteous sinners Rejoice that despite their sins and shortcomings, they could now be freely taken into the kingdom. They could now be a part of something that's much, much greater than themselves. But the Pharisees and lawyers were scandalized. They were offended. They hadn't accepted the baptism of John and they had no interest in seeking the healing and liberty of God in Christ seeing themselves as having no need of it. The stakes were too high for them, and they were not ready to give up the high honors that they received as the righteous ones, honors that would be lost if they acknowledged themselves as being unrighteous. And so they rejected the plan of God. They rejected a humiliation of repentance and forgiveness, receiving forgiveness before God. So, how does this apply today? The call of Jesus goes out to you and to me today as well. We too need to believe. The stakes are high when one f- follows Jesus with all their life. Yes, But the stakes are much higher for those who do not come to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who through faith restores us in him. So when we think about those situations that we run into in our lives, is Jesus the one who is to come? Or will a change in my scenery, a change in my stage of life, a change in my workplace, a direction that perhaps takes me further away from Jesus Christ to be my salvation. Hanging on and wondering, I'm withholding things from myself or maybe I am perhaps on the point of facing suffering for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and crying out to Jesus, Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Help me in this. Guide me in the right way that I should go. Then Jesus comes to us today with the words, Yes, I am the one who is to come. I'm your Savior. Blessed is the one who comes to me. He preaches the good news of the gospel of salvation through him. He heals the broken hearted. He proclaims liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He sets at liberty those who are oppressed by the chains of sin and the devil. And he's shown this to us not just in words, but also in deeds, also in his actions. Those who repent of their sin. Those who treasure the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ himself above all, who recognize themselves as unrighteous sinners and hold fast to Jesus alone, will rejoice. Because they will inherit the kingdom of God. And any privilege or honor, even that of being the forerunner of the Messiah himself, pales in comparison with the riches of even being the very least in the kingdom of heaven. Loved ones, the stakes are high. But Jesus assures us and comforts us with who he is. He assures us and comforts us that submission to him is worth it. That there is no other way. Though there are times when we might get frustrated, that life is perhaps not turning out the way we had hoped or desired, we can turn to him again. We can look on his life, we can look on his words, and we can look on his actions. And we can know that he is the one who is to come. He has shown himself to be so through the fulfillment of prophecy long ago, full of grace and truth. So put your faith in him. Trust in him as you move into this new year ahead and commit your ways to him. Amen.